Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with artist and author Liana Fink, whose new graphic memoir, Passing for Human, was published by Random House in September. Liana is a regular contributor to The New Yorker, The All, and Catapult. She is a recipient of a Fulbright Fellowship, a New York Foundation for the Arts Fellowship, and a Six Points Fellowship for Emerging Jewish Artists. She's had artist residencies with the McDowell Colony, Yaddo, the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council, and Tablet Magazine. Her first book, A Bintel Brief, was published in 2014. Passing for Human is a singular creation, a document of self-discovery, self-acceptance, and the search for creative liberation. The book is told in a series of first chapters, each taking a different opening tack after our artist heroine is visited by what she calls the fears that gnaw, tiny rats that perch on her shoulder and criticize her. Passing for human is about feeling like you don't have a place in the world, and then creating that place for yourself by claiming the full weird power of your identity. It's also a gorgeous meditation on creativity. As Liana writes, I don't draw because I love to draw. I don't draw because I draw well. I draw because once I lost something, and by drawing, I will find it. In this conversation, we talk about the long path of finding your own artistic blueprint in the world, why Liana thinks of the comic form as a kind of poetry, and how Instagram, where she has more than 205,000 followers, grants her creative freedom. We also talk about how she came to find useful those same creative fears that used to nod her so aggressively, and what she thinks is so great about a good first page. The book, I think, was about like longing for the ability to dive into the work. I think it takes a lot of baseline confidence to be able to to disappear into your own work. I think you have to believe it matters either for yourself or for others. And that takes either confidence or the confidence of others. And and that's a hard thing to come by. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And I so enjoyed Passing for Human, the day that it arrived, I sat down and read it all in one sitting, um, which I'm guessing you hear a lot because it feels very much like that sort of reading experience that you just kind of want to be inside of, like, in one complete moment. Thank you. Yeah, I think comics are like that a lot. Yeah, there's something, like, very propulsive about that narrative. Yeah, about that style. Yeah, it's like it's like a TV show, and it doesn't take that long. Um, well, I want to talk about that um, because you know, I know that it's so easy to read something that is short and feel like it didn't take very long, you know? And, and this is always a thing like that I know freelance writers like roll their eyes about because they'll get these assignments and it's like, well, it's just like 300 words. And it's like, that's really actually really hard yeah. to do, you know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, in a funny way, that's why, yeah, a book is better because it takes so long to start something. And if you're writing a short thing, you still spend the same amount of time like gaming out what it's going to be about and like the shape it'll take. Exactly. Yeah. But I don't mind if people read my works um, fast. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about this. Um, if you, if you would start by kind of talking about this one sentiment that, um, that I love so much. Um, you have this passage, a drawer doesn't draw because she loves to draw. She doesn't draw because she draws well. She draws because once she lost something and by drawing, she will find it again. And I really feel like artists of all media will resonate, that will, that will resonate with them. It certainly resonated with me with writing. And I wonder if you could just kind of talk about, you know, that feeling for you and how that sort of changed and evolved like kind of throughout your your career as an artist um I think I started drawing when I was young because um I would I and I was I had good fine motor skills as a little kid so I was good at drawing before other kids were and I don't know I used it as like my way of expressing myself because I was also very shy and Gradually, I stopped being so shy, and I learned how to get along in the world and talk and stuff and and make friends. And then suddenly, drawing became harder for me. I think I was as I tried so hard to to fit in in other ways. I also tried so hard to fit in with drawing. And when I was a little kid, I didn't need to draw like other artists drew. I just drew. But when I got older, I was trying hard to 
to fit in somehow and, and make art into my adult identity. And that gave me a lot of writer's block. And so we're, when the book takes place, I'm in my mid twenties, I think. And, and I, I don't draw because I love to draw anymore. And I don't draw because I draw well the way I did as a baby. I draw because I'm trying to find my lost childhood and, and reclaim that ability to express myself with drawing. Yeah, I love that. And it speaks to this lack of self-consciousness that I think so many of us have about our creative abilities that you kind of can't help but lose as you get older. And you be, But as you become more self-conscious, like what you're describing, you feel this urge to, you know, whether it comes in the form of sort of like just aping other people's styles or voices or this like kind of scramble to sort of find your place and you try so hard and it kind of feels further away from you, the harder you try. Yeah, I know. I think it comes back as you, as you like, if you become one of the artists who like counts according to the world, then you don't have to imitate other artists anymore and it gets a lot easier, but there's, there's a horrible time in between, like after you're allowed to just be a, a child and before you're recognized. How did you deal with that period? I mean, I know a large, in a large part, that's kind of what, what a lot of the book is about, but sort of finding that for yourself. Um, I dealt with it by um, eating compulsively and sleeping around. And then after that, I dealt with it by taking up jogging and making friends. And then it was over, but it was a terrible 10 years. Yeah. And, and I always, I guess, I don't know, I guess we're all kind of always comparing ourselves to other artists and being like, well, they're doing it this way. Am I doing it wrong? Or, you know, but, but I'm always really struck when people in those sorts of headspaces, like can use the art as refuge. Cause that's never been it for me, you know, but you hear about yeah. people who are like, Oh, I can, you know, I just, I just dove into the work and it's like, no, this is the, that's the opposite of what I can do in that, in that moment. Yeah, no, I can't. The book I think was about like longing for the ability to dive into the work. I think it takes a lot of baseline confidence to be able to to disappear into your own work. I think you have to believe it matters either for yourself or for others. And that takes either confidence or the confidence of others. And, and that's a hard thing to come by. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like that's something you've kind of started to arrive at? I mean, on paper, you have a sort of career at this point that I think it would probably be really easy for people to assume that you do have a lot of confidence. You know, you're a New Yorker cartoonist and you have this huge Instagram following and the book's a success. And, but does that, does that feel that way to you? Yes. <laughs> well, that's kind of that's have, awesome. Yeah. I want to say I have like just enough confidence right now and I could use a lot more, but I have enough that, like, I don't have enough that I'm working at my peak capacity, but I do have enough that I can sit down and get some work done every day, which is a lot. I mean, that's like a really nice thing and I don't take it for granted. And I also know it could disappear at any moment. Like, um, I, like I know I'll have enough to live on for the next six months and that's something I haven't felt in a long time. Mm. And that's part of the confidence. And I know I have a bunch of assignments to tide me over for the next year or so. And that's huge. And I have Instagram followers and that's huge like I know people will see what I make and that's so great I know that could disappear like it's very tenuous but but I I try to live in the moment yeah it's a very it's a very Buddhist outlook or something that that you have toward it like it could all just go away and that's all right yeah no it's not all right it's not all right right it is what it is (laughs) yeah um does the Instagram thing actually help you in in the sense that you can like I imagine it's much easier to treat every piece, um, to hold it all a little light, more lightly if you're, because you're, you're posting stuff so frequently. Yeah. It's so helpful. It's so helpful to have something where, um, where I'm not being paid and I'm not like trying to please a specific editor and I won't, I don't feel like I'm letting people down if I do a bad one. Mm. I think some of not being able to work and not having confidence comes from respecting the people you're working for and wanting to put in a lot of work and give them your best. And that, that can make you stop. But I don't know, Instagram, 
it is really light. I do the drying so fast. I post many per day and no one's paying me. And I don't know the people who are looking at the work for the most part. So it's a really, like if I'm feeling stuck with my work, that's when I do the Instagram drawings usually and it, it frees me up again. Right, right. Was that something that you cultivated to kind of get the like, you know, were you, were you seeking it like kind of as a platform or did you just sort of like wake up one day and you were like, oh, I have a few thousand followers now. And then it just kind of kept snowballing. No, I, well, I wasn't seeking it. I, I didn't let myself post drawings on there for the longest time because I knew other people who posted drawings and I guess I didn't know enough people that I would felt like it was this big community I joined. I knew like a couple of people and I was, I felt like I would be copying them if I posted drawings. Mm. So I didn't, but I, I like was in love with Instagram and I envied them a lot. And then I started posting drawings. I got over it and, and I just loved it so much and I was addicted to it. And I think I cared a lot. I always counted the likes. Like I wanted like 30 of my friends to see it instead of like five of my friends, but I wasn't trying to get it as a platform. And then I think Jenny Slate reposted one of them and it started growing and that was very nice. That's very cool. And are, do you know her? Or was that just kind of a random thing that she saw it? No, I don't know her. I like her. Yeah, no, she's awesome. Jenny Slate, we think you're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I just started watching Big Mouth last night, Shut and, up. like, her voice on Big Mouth is killing me. Wait, what is Big Mouth? Oh, my God. I should know this. Big Mouth is so much fun. It's on Netflix, and it's Nick. Uh, I, think, okay. I think it's a Nick Kroll. I think he is, a, oh, like, yeah, the that main guy show. behind it, but it's the, like, puberty, like, animated show. Oh, yeah. I read about that. It sounded amazing. Yeah, it's really, really good. And Jenny Slate plays, like, this just, like, really, like, cool, dorky girl. And her voice, it's, like, it's, like, not the Marcel voice, but it's, like, this just really, <laughs> I don't know. It's, like, a kind of overbite braces voice. I, I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll watch it. <laughs> um, it's filthy, but in, like, a really funny way. <laughs> it's completely disgusting. Though. It sounds perfect. <laughs> Um, well, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, about the book. Um, why did you want to write a graphic memoir? It started out as an adaptation of a Nabokov novel, The Real Life of Sebastian Knight, and it just gradually got less and, like, more and more of a, um, like, a book after that book and less and less of a direct adaptation for various reasons, including legal reasons. And... And there was one point where it was fiction, but I think I thought, like, I, I feel like that novel is so autobiographical. And I thought, no, this has to, if I'm, if I'm taking something from that novel, it should be the autobiography and the splitting oneself into two and feeling like the better half has been lost. That's what I, that's what I took from it. And, and the longing for childhood and home, like those, I think are the essence of that book. Yeah. And so the, that, that idea of, of your last shadow, I mean, is that, is that kind of the, if, if you, in as much as you and your parents have talked about having these shared feelings, you know, is that the language that you guys would use around it? I don't know. I definitely, like I, all my stories about childhood come from my mom who, who has this great talent for turning her own life into a story. Uh And I, I, and I didn't have it when I was a kid and I always thought it was so weird that she did that and she would like pin feelings onto her past, which I think kids don't really do and not all people do, like yeah. saying like those were terrible years and those were great years. And and she she created her past in stories and she also similarly created our child, my brother and my childhood in this, in this house that she designed in the country and um told us all these beautiful stories and made up all these games and she was a city person so she didn't know the names of flowers or anything but we had all these gardens and she made up names for all the flowers and taught them to us very confidently so I still I still know all these fake names for flowers um so the stories I tell are are versions of her stories in my mind but I don't think she thinks my stories are her stories so 
So that's interesting. And I don't think she completely relates to my my very specific personal version of the past. Right. And I don't I don't think my dad does either. But it is to me, it's really an homage to her way of storytelling. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's always how those those things work in families. It's like, you know, you everybody's kind of living through that narrative differently and telling their story to themselves differently. Yeah, I know. Stories are so strange. Like they bring us, they make sense of everything, but they also set us apart from each other. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Even something like that, that like, you know, it is this shared experience and it's so, it's so funny to think about it that way that, that the narrative splits and makes a shared experience more isolating. Yeah, exactly. I guess we tell them to each other, though. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And we share them. Yeah, it's funny, like, I definitely have, you know, which I don't, I don't know if it's it's quite the same thing as, as what we're talking about, but, like, stories that my mom will tell about my childhood or something that, like, I, I respond very differently emotionally to the story than she does sometimes or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, same. And you're like, oh, you thought that was a positive thing or whatever. Yeah, I know. I think that's what, that's the secret to a good relationship is listening to each other's versions of the stories. But I I don't know about, I guess it counts for families also. Yeah. It's very disorienting. Yes, it's very disorienting. Did, did you, uh, have to kind of interview them at all through the process, you know, or were these all things that you just remembered so clearly having heard or felt able to extrapolate? No. Well, I only interviewed my mom about what the house looked like and what she thought about when she was building it. And that, that was important because I'm very not architecturally minded Mm -hmm. in certain ways. Um, But I, I've been like talking to my dad about it since the book came out. I didn't even want to talk to him about it while I was writing the book because I was afraid of how he would feel. But but it, it's so interesting to get his point of view now. And I kind I kind of wish I'd had it then, but it might have been a burden also. Like he thinks in in my version of the story, my dad had was a doctor and he had this job in New York in upstate-ish New York, and my mom was a city architect with a kind of back-breaking prestigious career, and she ended up throwing a, like, she, like, tossed her career away in this grand gesture, and she came to live with my dad, and she built this beautiful kingdom, and she had these two amazing kids, just kidding, and then she, and she became a painter, which was really her dream all along, and and this thing she felt like she wasn't allowed to do. Mm. But my version of the story also is that she felt like she had to choose between like this public version of art and this more private version of art that was just for herself and that that was a very female choice and that men are so trained to to put their, if they're an artist, to give it to the public and use it for for glory and money. And women are kind of pushed in two directions at once in that direction, but also in the direction of putting every talent they have towards being a a really lovely person and a good mom and a good wife and just making people happy in their smaller circle. But my dad sees sees the story very differently. He thinks of himself as kind of an entrepreneur who helped start this medical practice in the country and and that he was so happy there that he he was pushing my mom, whom he'd just met, to like start her own architecture firm in the country, which which is always a dream of young architects who work for these big 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 deadening firms to go off alone and and design houses. And she actually did that at first. Um, I think my dad thinks it was a win win, and my mom still kind of thinks it was mostly to be with my dad. Mm. But that that was a different angle, and and she ended up give, giving that up um, because she teamed up with a kind of not not so experienced contractor, and someone ended up one of his workers ended up dying on a building site, oh, and wow. she just she couldn't do it anymore from from the horror. Right, of course. So is that is that how she turned to painting? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but she was doing that for the first couple of years that she was there. 
And I didn't include that in the book. Right, right, right. I almost did. Well, that's a hard thing with like, you know, because that something like that takes so much of the emotional kind of, it takes so much of like the reader's emotional bandwidth. And then it's like, if that's not where you're really going with the story, then maybe that's not even a helpful thing to introduce. Yeah. Also, that part of the story didn't come to me until I'd almost finished writing the book. My mom, my mom told me it, and I, I didn't know it. Oh, it you had never it. known. Okay, it sheltered me from it. Yeah, and I tried to squeeze it in later on, and and I, I partly didn't want to like out anybody, mm-hmm. and um, I partly didn't want that on paper because it is so, it's so horrible, and I know it. I don't think it was my mom's fault in any way and but I still I don't know I don't want to write about that in connection with her another thing is that as I was making the book my mom started writing these pieces of autobiographical fiction and emailing them to me which I think was her indirect way of telling me her version of the story so I was getting those the whole time I was writing the book that's really funny so so you yeah in addition to having your kind of innate inclination to make art you were in a very creative environment growing up as well yeah I was in a very very creative bubble in a not very creative area uh-huh. we lived in a kind of like ex-urban town where it's, we lived near some like ex-hippie outposts of like of art making and craft making but we but our town itself wasn't like that and it was more kind of like gun culture and stuff which was not our mm-hmm. thing at all mm-hmm. but then we, my brother and I were were sent to school in a different county that was a very small Jewish school, which was in its own way, like very not intellectual or arty. So it's kind of like somewhat nouveau riche and um, very small and everyone was wearing designer clothes, but mm. there weren't really any good art classes or anything. Sorry, Mrs. Berman. It's really hard to keep your your tiny sense of identity in a in an environment like that. Yeah, it is. It's so weird when you're being brought up as like a city person, but you you hardly know the city. It's like, or as an artist, but you don't really know any other artists besides your mom. It's like you, I guess I, a lot of people feel this way when they start going to art school is that they have this idea of artists as the, the other people who are just like them and they'll finally not be lonely after they meet the other artists in the city and then they meet the other artists and the other artists are completely unlike them because yeah. they've made up their own idea of art. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I remember this experience really vividly like when I went to my first um, residency seeing like older women artists there and being like, oh, is that a thing that you can be? Because like, I didn't have that around me when I was growing up. And so the idea that like, you could sort of carry this lifestyle into your like 60s and 70s. And like, that's what it looks like instead of you like, looking like every old lady in my hometown and going to the market and then going to church and that being all you're doing, you know? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Did you like the older women artists? I loved them. Yeah, they were so cool. That's really good. Did you did you have kind of artist mentors? I mean, besides your mom? Um, yes, but not. I don't think I started finding mentors or friends until after college. I had I had some teacher friends in college, but none of I don't think any of them was actually an art teacher. It mm. tended to gravitate to like art history, and I was friends with the school librarian and. In high school, I had a friend who was a history teacher, but yeah, the other artists were really baffling to me, and and I had, I don't know, I I sought out some some grown up illustrators when I was young, but it didn't, I don't know, it didn't really, I didn't feel like I connected. I felt like there was this huge gulf, like they had success and I had, I was a nobody, and and I would never enter their world and I felt really icky like tugging at their coattails Mm. and stuff Mm -hmm. but as I got as I got older I think I found like it's just like any people like you're you're only gonna be friends with like one out of ten who you meet at best right so as I started meeting more and more people I found my friends and my mentors 
I want to talk about um, the the format of the book, um, which is so cool. And uh, for those of for folks who are listening who haven't read it yet, um, you kind of restart chapter one over and over again for the whole book. Um, so it's it's this yeah. idea of not really knowing how to dive in, and you've got. Um, so you've got different perspectives with with each new chapter. Um, but how did that how did that idea come come to you, or what do you like? What did you like about that? I do think I've had that idea for. I think I had it for at least the last two years that I was working on the book. I was working on it for like six years, including the Sebastian Knight stuff, mm. which really shouldn't count. But. But I I did keep starting and stopping again. Like I would have this idea for a beginning and I would work really hard on it. And then I would despair because I, I think I need some, um, some people on board telling me that I'm doing the right thing in order to keep going. And I just like, it was so lonely and I was so like felt, had so much self-doubt that I kept stopping. So most of the chapters in the book really were supposed to be first chapters. And I really did. I liked, I kind of liked them all or some of them. And I really, I did kind of consider, like I kept considering turning each of them into a whole book. Mm -hmm. And I, it's not like I really threw each of them away. It was like, I got really confused about which one was the book and which one wasn't because they didn't really match. And then I think, I don't remember how I had this stroke of insight that made me turn them all into chapter one. The book is told in a series of chapter ones and there are these creatures that not on not on my face yes. and tell me they tell me that whatever chapter I just made is not good and that I have to start over. So they reappear in between chapters and, and I keep starting over. Yeah, that and I'm sure I'm not the only one who who recognized that very acutely, but there was one one panel where you're like, but I did it the way you told me to and they're like, No, it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah, there. I think that's how fear is. It's like I know it's the the best. I think from when I'm in when I'm in a relationship that's not working out, or when I've been on a few dates and I'm terrified and like I don't like I know the person isn't that into me, and I can admit it to myself mm. that you you shouldn't ever listen to the fears exactly like they say. Text him now, make him see you tonight. But like you don't have to actually do that but you do have to recognize the fears and think if the fears are there, they're, they're telling me something on a grander scale. What are they telling me? And it's, it's a real art learning how to read the fears and not take them literally. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of work on this myself, just like in my life and like have been yeah. diving real deep into like Tara Brock meditations and like Pima Chodron and like ooh, all. What of, is that? Ooh, ooh. So they're both. Um, Tara Brock is a, a meditation teacher, and I think she's a psychologist as well. Um, and she's got this really great book, Radical Acceptance. Um, and she wow. So cool. she she has a podcast that like is really I think just tapes of talks that she gives and and like she does guided meditations. Um. So that's how I first got into that her. Great. Yeah. And then Pima Chodron, I think is a is a Buddhist monk. Um and she wrote she wrote yeah, that I've book. Heard of yeah, her. when things fall apart. Um Yeah. But they both have this idea of like that that we kind of turn away from our fears and so we make them worse and we don't pay attention to what they really want and we have to kind of sit yeah. with them and let them speak yeah. and then like get to like kind of translate what they're actually getting at and that's really, really yeah, hard work. That's true. Yeah. As you get older, you start to recognize them because I think our feelings are limited and there are only a certain number of feelings that we can have. And maybe until something truly tragic happens to us, this like, like a breakup feeling is going to feel the same with every breakup and we get used to it and it gets easier as it goes on. Right. Right. And we, we learn how to read it. Do you feel like you've gotten better at dealing with the the gnawing the kind of creative fears yeah yeah I think they're really useful they tell me when I'm when I'm on the wrong track and Mm. I think I used to not listen to them because I was holding on to to my creative practice for dear life and if I had a fear that said this this chapter isn't working then 
I would feel like if I let go of it, what I would just stop working and not ever make art again. Mm. And so I couldn't listen to them. I had to keep pushing forward with the same chapter that I knew wasn't working. But now I have confidence that I can start a new thing and that I will start something that will work and the fears won't go for me if if I'm working on something that's a really good thing. Mm. So I listen to them more and I I stop projects a lot more. Like I was like, I don't know, I I try to write a book review sometimes and it's not what I want to say and then I just don't write it. Yeah. And I think that that can be a really hard, I know that's a really hard thing for me. I don't know if it quite maps onto art, but it's a really hard thing for me to learn with writing that like, I don't have to want to do or be good at all of the kinds of writing. (laughs) Like, like sometimes I'll like, yeah, like, I feel like I had this whole period of like, being really focused on essays. And it's like, I don't really like this very much. Why am I doing this? Interesting. Yeah. Do you write fiction? I do. I'm working on a novel right now. Yeah. Yeah. I have so many questions about fiction. So do I. I mean, I think that's <laughs> kind of why I started the show. Like, because I, I, all of my background is in nonfiction. Um, but but yeah, here I am. I think so I, my feeling about fiction is that I don't know if this is really true, but my theory is that it's it's like a way to process things in real life in the privacy of an invented story. So you have more freedom. Absolutely. That's absolutely how it feels to me. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, when I was reading, when I was reading about you and reading interviews with you, um, to prepare for our conversation, I really resonated with like, you, you express this a few different ways, but the sentiment of like really liking people, but ideally wanting them not to talk to you. And like, (laughs) like, I think I have that, like, so when I, you know, I, I do, I do like to talk to people, But when I was working on stories, you know, I was working on articles always made me feel really intrusive and uncomfortable. And so like the idea of like working toward the same ideas, but just making it all up is very attractive. Oh, you were like being a journalist and talking to people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That I really get that, that terror. Like I've never, I've been asked to interview people on stage a couple of times and that just seems like the most stage is great, but interviewing people seems like the scariest possible thing you can do. And I can't even explain why. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think like the, the kind of conversations like this show are perfect for me. Cause it's like, we're both talking about stuff we're really into and we really like, and we can connect over. I think yeah. it was the connection part that I always was like, I was never very good at just getting information from people. I always wanted to just kind of like make that connection or like, have a con like get excited about something or what you know and then kind of realizing that wasn't your place and then it was like okay well I don't know I don't know how to fit in here yeah it seems like one of those fields where there are so many rules of manners that you need to follow and you don't know them totally totally my when what I was gonna say about about giving stuff up for me as a comics artist it almost always comes from someone giving me an assignment to do a certain kind of thing in a comics format and I think certain things just aren't supposed to be in a comics format. Mm. And that's when when it takes me a while to figure out that I can't do it. But then the fears are biting me and I realize I just can't do it. I think book, book reviews might be one of those things. Is that becoming a thing? Like everybody just kind of wants to turn everything into a comic or like editors want to turn things into comics? I think as I, as like I get more like known or have more contacts and who are editors, I get asked to do stuff and no one would ever ask me to do stuff that's written because that's not mm-hmm. what I'm known for. And and you need to learn to know yourself and tell, tell people what you do and what you don't do. I guess that's your job as a professional. Yeah. I'm getting there. And I think, you know, like that, that feels a lot to me more and more as I work with all of these feelings for myself, like really connected to the fear in the sense of like, in confidence, but not even in a like, oh, I feel like I'm a legit artist or I've made it to a certain degree, but more of just kind of like a confidence to say like, this is who I am and who I'm not. Yeah, exactly. But that's definitely been trial and error for me. Yeah. 
How did you kind of get to, how did you get to where you are now? Like, how did you, you know, you draw for the New Yorker very regularly and you're, you're obviously very visible on Instagram and like none of that stuff happens overnight, but. Well, I went to art college and I think I, I always drew when I was a kid. Like I, I always knew I was, I wanted to draw my whole life, but I didn't really know the landscape of what is fine art and what is cartooning and, and all that stuff. and. When I was in my teens, I went through this very highbrow phase. Like, I only read poetry. I only read things by people who were dead and ideally, like, very ancient. And I wanted to be the highest form. If some, Like, I, I don't think I wanted to be, like, a, I don't know, a newspaper comics mm-hmm. artist. Because I really, like, I don't know, worshipped the, the higher art forms. And I didn't know that newspaper comics or or even the New Yorker was less of a high art form than a painting in a museum. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I found that out, I like changed what I wanted to do very suddenly from, from comics to paintings. So I had some really weird years of making really bad paintings in art school and not liking comics anymore because I thought they weren't highbrow enough. And after college, I applied for a grant to do a book made of words and pictures that was the first such going to be the, a brand new format. And I was like, what would I call this book? And I was like, I'll just coin a term, the gra- a graphic novel. And then I was like, oh, that's, that's already a thing. <laughs> yeah. And so, but it took me like a little, and, and then there was a lot, then I, I, called myself a graphic novelist, but I didn't really believe it in my head. And I made this really weird, but I took a semester off college and made this really weird, like painted graphic novel where I translated this French play called Fedra mm-hmm. by Racine. And, and I don't speak really good French, but it, it's like a really weird translation. And, and then I painted it as a, as a book with pictures. And it was a lot of work and, and it was very highbrow and and weird. And, and I didn't call it, I don't think I called it a graphic novel, but, um, but then like after, when I was already after college, I started going the graphic novel, like lectures and meeting other people who made comics. And I was like, oh yeah, no, these are my people, I can stop being highbrow now. Mm, uh-huh, uh-huh. So, so the, it's the pretty sh- highbrow. There's no brow. There's no brow. <laughs> so the um the shadow idea in the book, it's kind of like also not. It's not just necessarily about finding it, losing it, and finding it again, but like accepting it, maybe. Yeah, exactly. I never thought about that because it feels like because that. I think I think that really probably rings true to a lot of people that idea of like you know oh no this is the one thing that that this thing is allowed to be and I'm not that so I need to be this other thing and and that even when you're like you know like with the fears you're just sitting there forcing it so you're like no this is this is it this is this is what I'm supposed to do yeah exactly yep yeah in a way I drove the shadow away by by trying so hard to not have her there Hey, it's Courtney. If you get as much out of listening to WMFA as I do out of producing it, and I hope that you do, then I have a favor to ask. Would you consider becoming a patron? Think of this like those fundraising drives they do on NPR, only with less hourglass. Okay, with no hourglass. Patreon is a digital platform that allows listeners to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount, and in return, I give you thank you gifts like shoutouts, transcripts, and bonus segments. Choose from my pledge tiers or donate a custom amount that works for you. All of you who do the freelance hustle will hear me when I say that literally every dollar counts. Platforms like Patreon are so important for independent creatives like me and for growing shows like WMFA. By helping me continue to make WMFA, you're not only supporting a passion project, you're also supporting a mini economy of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. Your money goes directly to the people behind the show. It's kind of like shopping at the farmer's market for your ears. 
to pledge, visit www.patreon.com backslash WMFA podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash WMFA podcast. And thanks so much. I truly appreciate it. I, I know the book is very compressed and very, um, you, like I, I saw you, for instance, uh, in an interview say that like, you know, the Mr. Neutral is like a, an amalgamation of all of these different boyfriends. So I'm assuming that that same kind of idea was behind all of the construction, but like, was there like a, a period or a moment where you kind of gave into that and surrender to it and remember feeling like, Oh, it's back. And I, and I accept it now. Oh yeah, actually. I think so. I think there are parts of the book that are like little excerpts of the Torah mm-hmm. where, where I like tell the story of God creating the world and I make God a woman and I draw connections between the God character and my mom like creating this this beautiful like playful world to, for us to live in, and I I had made that that Torah piece for a man I was dating really, and I just made it kind of to impress him and to show him how I felt about him, and that was the first thing I the first comic I ever made that I felt connected to. It just it came out fast. I think. Part of why comics are so hard is you're trying to do so many things at once, so you can't really sink into any of it. You're telling a story, you're writing, you're drawing, you're adding detail, you're doing pacing. Like there are just too many questions, and you can't you can't get into a flow. But I think since I was taking text from from the Torah, and since I really loved the Torah, and since I had an audience in mind, all those things it it came it came out really fast. And that I think that was the first moment that I felt that that I could really express myself in comics. And when I started the Instagram, I really felt like that. Mm-hmm. And before I started the Instagram, I I had bought this Wacom Cintiq, which is a screen that you could draw on directly. And when I got that, I felt I started drawing on photographs and there's like a magical couple of months where I felt like I could express myself fully in that way. And and it was all very new, those feelings. But I did feel like I could express myself with, when I was writing in college, I wrote poems and I felt that was an, a window where I felt like I could express myself. I feel like self-expression is kind of this moving window and yeah. you have to find the window and it, it keeps changing. Yeah. I think I think that makes a lot of sense. And that makes a lot of sense to me, having read this, that poetry would also be a form that speaks to you because I feel like the text in, in Passing for a Human is so spare and clean and simple and straightforward, but just so it's so distilled. Um and I and yeah. I, I don't know if for me that would be like that would come at the end of having written a lot, lot more and cutting it way, way down. So I don't know if like that oh, yeah, is your process, but like how, yeah, how are you, how are yeah. you working with the, the, the text itself? Yeah, that's my process. I, I do a million drafts and, and I, I don't know, I, I, I don't think I really knew what I was doing when I started this, but at this point, when I do a million drafts, I do one very rough draft and then, and then I I, I just keep making more drafts and when there starts to be pictures and I use a light box and I trace the drafts so that the pictures keep changing a little bit, but I don't have to rethink everything from draft to draft. And I, I do edit a lot. I, I think that might come from self-consciousness and not wanting to say anything that doesn't sound good. Yep. <laughs> and I don't, I don't enjoy it, but I don't know. It's a, it's a, skill I have I think some people aren't good enough at editing and I'm kind of too good at editing yeah yeah I definitely empathize with that and it's really hard to turn that off like the only way I can kind of turn it off and it still doesn't totally work but it works well enough usually is to write longhand that's the only way that keeps me from like because if it's on the screen I'm just like like I was doing a writing exercise the other day that was just really like more for kind of like honestly catharsis than anything else and I it was this weird sensation of being able to feel 
all of my, all of those aspects of myself writing it at the same time. And that part of me that wanted to make it look good and wanted to make it like literary. And the part of me that was just like, I need to just get this out. Yeah. But then at the same time, when, when you're trying to just get something out, you're often talking in the, like about lower things, like, like, Oh, I'm so mad at this cashier instead of like, this is what poli- the state of uh, world politics today or something. Very, I guess I mean very emotional and very personal and like less respectable. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's in a way, I don't, I don't think I would write a really lavish story about being angry at a cashier and right. then have to edit that down. Right, right, yeah. It, do you look at that as a kind of positive constraint of the form that like, you know, each each box you can only put so much text in. Yeah, I do think of it as poetry. I kind of, I think I was drawn, so drawn to poetry because it was so constrained, even though not all poetry is so constrained, but but I like when it is. And it, it's kind of like ballet, like there are all these rules. And I feel the same way about comics and New Yorker cartoons. That like having a little bit of the, not quite restrictions maybe, but like borders helps you. You can be more kind of creative within them. Yeah, you can't, like, you can't make a super complicated story. It would take all your life if you, if you're gonna, like, every page takes you a few hours. So you're not, like, the fewer the better. Right, 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 right. I was curious to ask you, um, I, I read a review of the book, uh, that mentions the limits of, the limitations of narrative. Um, and I wanted, and I wondered if you would, if you, like, that was the reviewer's language, but do you find narrative limiting? Yeah, I think like what we were talking about with, with stories being isolating and yeah. only being a, like you solidify the truth into a partial truth and then the rest of the truth goes away. I think in that way, yes. Did, were you thinking in a different way too? No, no, I was just That's curious. Yeah. I wanted to see how that manifested for you. Cause I would, I could see like, you know, there is something very poetic even about like, you know, like for instance, like your Instagram posts, you know, these just kind of one-off um, like they're sort of like capsule narratives, um, but, but very, very, yeah. very, very sparse narratives. And so I wondered yeah. if the idea of a kind of bigger narrative was, was unappealing for that reason. Yeah, I feel a lot more at home with these with the capsules for some reason. I think with a longer narrative, there's so much response. Like every like a first sentence is so fun to me, and it contains all possible next sentences. Mm. But once you choose the next sentence, you it's just so scary to try to choose the right one. And I think that's my fear with writing. I don't, and that's kind of why I kept starting to the story over and over again in this book. I, I didn't feel confident with this story that's so important to me choosing a direction for it. There's a great Joan Didion line about that. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, where she says something about how much, exactly what you said, like how much is contained in the first sentence. And then when she's like, and then by the time you pick the second sentence, the thing's basically written. Yeah. When I was younger, I did some some work for a book cover for a book cover designer. And I would, I would read a bunch of books for him and like come up with some ideas. And I always loved the first page. Like every, like that was the, my favorite part of the job was reading the first page. And I would start to feel so claustrophobic by the fifth page or so. And I would just hate the rest of the book. I'm so picky. I'm so easy to please with the first page and so picky with the rest. Wow. Yeah. So, so that begs the question, what are, what are some of, what do you think are really good first pages or first sentences? Oh my God. Like, well, everyone, but let me think. Hmm. Oh, you know, I even, I loved, uh, I love a Jonathan Franzen first page and I'm a huge not fan of Jonathan Franzen. Uh Uh-huh. Jonathan Franzen is one of those for me that, like, as a person, I really dislike him, but I have to begrudgingly admit that I really admire a lot of his writing. I think his texture is so good, but he doesn't ask deep questions of himself, and that comes out after the first page. I think that is very true. 
Yeah, like after a first page, you start to get to know the person and it's like you're looking, like I think the first page is like a first date or a first meeting and everyone, I love first dates, like everyone's so great. And then the second page is like suddenly you've been married to this person for 10 years and you're like cleaning his closet and you're so annoyed by what you find in there. That's so funny because this is so intimate. It's like the exact opposite for me. Like, and I remember having this feeling every year, like at the beginning of the school year, that I would want to just be like magically transported to like the third week of school. Like, I hated that. I hated the first day. I hated getting to figure. I just wanted to know everything and know what to expect and like know where my seat was. And yeah. Oh my God. I felt completely the opposite. I always had like potential friends the first week of school and then by like the third day of school maybe my fly was like one third down and I got so embarrassed that I never talked to anyone again and I let all the friends go like I was so self-conscious that's so funny I still feel that way I love I love being a freelancer because I get to go into more offices than most people get to go into and it's so fun to go into an office like once every few months that is very true I know that but if I spent two days in a row in the office, I'd, I'd amass like 50 enemies and people I was afraid didn't like me and stuff. No, that's the that's the dream part of being a freelancer because you're above all of the office drama and you can just stop by yeah. and be like, hey guys, I delivered a really yeah. great project for you. You're very excited. We're all friends. I'm going to go now. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's pretty dreamy. <laughs> Um, while we're talking about other people's writing, I wanted to ask you because I love the variety of epigraphs that you have at each opening chapter. Um, so for folks, um, you know, there's, there's an Ian Forrester line, there's an Andrew Solomon line. And then this was my personal favorite because I adore Stacey Schiff and I really loved Vera, but you have a quote from Vera. I'm so glad. Yeah. She's one of my very, very favorite writers. Clearly you're a very voracious and very varied reader, but you know, where, what is your input? Like, like, what are you, what are you reading? Oh yeah. I have a kind of tragic reading history when I was very, well, I guess I read pretty like a little more than average when I was a kid. Cause my mom is such a reader. She's like, I don't know. She grew up with parents who bickered. So she, she's one of those people who loves like reading to escape and she would read all these adventure novels and stuff. Mm-hmm. And she still reads like that. And um, so she taught me to read, but I was, I think, naturally more of an outdoorsy kid and less of a reading kid. And like, I hate TV. I don't, I don't like to be pushed into a different world. But then when I got, when I got lonely, when I was 12 or so, I started reading poetry in this way, not, I think not the way people read novels, like, I would, I read it like it was a religious text and I would just pour over every word and try to find the meaning of life in it and feel, and, and I also felt very close to the writers, which I don't think is how a novel reader generally reads. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I read, I loved Nabokov. I loved Isaac Denison. Like I love people who have a kind of meta narrative mm-hmm. and it makes me feel closer to the writer. And, and then I read and read and read and then I stopped reading when I was about, I think when I was 21 is when I realized I wasn't going to be a poet because I think I'd met some poets. And I, <laughs> yeah. And you were just like, this I is didn't. not who I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that happened. And I stopped I, reading also was very connected to wanting to be a writer. I really wanted to be a writer from mm. 12 to 21. And, and I stopped and, and it wasn't conscious, but I, and I kept trying really hard to read again, but it wasn't the same. And gradually I started making art. And I think, I think not being able to tell my own story freely made me somehow unable to take stories in. Mm. God, I think there's so much truth to that. Yeah, but now I'm re- like I've I've been buying books all this time because I feel so bad that I don't read them. I read a ton on audiobook yeah. like while I'm drying. I listen nonstop. I've listened to Stacey Schiff's books like each like ten times on audio. But but it's not 
quite the same. And for some reason, I've, I've been reading for the past few months, and I'm reading mostly comics now because those are the things I was really missing on audio. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, do they even offer audio versions of like graphic novels? No, I would have not imagined. So but like, yeah. I also really hate audio dramas for whatever reason. And I think they would probably be like that if they existed mm-hmm. at all. I know it's a really fine line. It's like, it's like, I feel like, um, like I can't, I could never get into like Prairie Home Companion, like that kind of thing. It's just no, like, yeah. no, nope. <laughs> I love talk radio. That's, I think that's my sweet spot. For sure. For sure. I listened to, when I lived in New York, Every weekend I listened to car talk, even though I didn't have a car and I lived in the middle of New York. I was just like, no, but I love car talk. (laughs) Have you had that, um, you know, in, in the kind of art drawing world as you've gotten sort of, as your stature has gotten bigger, have you sort of met heroes and had to face that like, oh my God, am I going to have to see whether or not this person's an asshole? Yeah, that's part of why I stopped reading, actually. I think I read because the world was so distant, the the world of writers, and there was no way I was ever going to cross over. And then suddenly when it became kind of the world I was in, because I was living in the city and, like, getting to know writers, like, it wasn't it wasn't an escape in any way anymore. I, re- I really think it was connected. Yeah, that's super interesting. It's it, it, And it makes sense. Like, I think, like... Like, it's somehow, I don't know, it's, like, I am equating it for some reason with, like, control, like, a sense of control, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm very, I'm, like, a lot of the writers who I love, whom I've met, I'm, like, I don't know, it's not, I guess you lose the feeling that you own them. Yeah. But you, but the ones I, the ones I really like and have met are very, very, very good people. That's good. That's a good streak to keep going. Yeah. Did you hear the Fresh Air interview of Mr. Rogers? Oh, my God, no. I don't know if I'm, like, spiritually ready to deal with, like, the Mr. Rogers. Like, I haven't watched the documentary. Like, I just, I don't know. It's yeah. it's all so tender. He said, he said this thing that made me feel really bad about him, but I feel good about him again. But it was, he... Um, he said that once he had met Shirley Temple as a grown woman, and I guess an old woman, and he was like, you were my, you used to be my favorite person. And she, like, very charmingly and snarkily, it sounds like, replied, and I'm not still. <laughs> and then he said, and that really hurt my feelings. And that made me feel so bad that he said that, because <laughs> I related to her in that story. Yeah, no, him. of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. I, um, <laughs> Natalie Goldberg was on the show this summer, and she um, she wrote this. Uh, she's written a lot of books, which is relevant to the story that I'm about to tell. But she her very famous book is called Writing Down the Bones, um, and it's like it's this really beautiful book about writing. It's like these this collection of very oh. small essays about writing, and she's a Zen Buddhist, so a lot of it is about like writing as meditation and. Um, and but she said the same thing that people get people will come up to her and be very excited to tell her that like that like you know your book your I reread your book every year and she's like I wrote other books yeah. read the other books <laughs> also yeah 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 once I heard Renata Adler give a talk and she seemed so hurt that people love Speedboat and mm. not Pitch Dark her mm. other novel and I love Speedboat and I don't love Pitch Dark and I don't know I think she's wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the sort of thing, too, where it's, like, you just, like, your relationship to that work changes. Like, you're, like, those are two, those are never going to be the same. The experience of creating it and then the experience of consuming it are never going to be the same. No. So, like, you just can't, like, you as the writer, I feel like, can't get so attached to the idea of of how it's received. No, it's not up to a writer to decide which things people love. Well, thank you so much for making the time today. I don't want to take up too much more of your Friday afternoon. Um, So there's a question that I always ask at the end of our conversations, uh, which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? Well, I think the baseline of creative satisfaction for me would be getting a whole feeling or idea sufficiently onto paper, which which is why I get more satisfaction from small cartoons than from big things. 
but new for some reason I've newly been wanting to work on longer projects and just like really needing to feel like I can escape into them and and that involves like putting down my phone and feeling transported and feeling kind of like I'm reading so that's a new kind of creative satisfaction and I'm chasing it and I'm not quite there yet awesome that sounds really exciting well keep us posted come back when you've when you've done your cool longer projects it was so fun to be on your show it was so much fun thank you so much have a good weekend you too Bye. bye Today's conversation was edited by Phoebe Wang and produced by Courtney Ballastier. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about at WMFAPodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at CF Ballastier. And writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write a review on iTunes. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio. And the theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.